All right. Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we're welcoming back a very special guest. We have Emily Kirchner Morris, and she has a dual master's degree in counseling and education. She specializes in working with gifted, high potential, and 2E students, including those with ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, high functioning autism, and anxiety. Emily frequently works with clients on emotional intensity, underachievement, depression, perfectionism, social skills, and bullying. She's the founder and president of the Gifted Support Network, a local nonprofit, and host of the Neurodiversity Podcast, which can be found on neurodiversitypodcast.com. And her newest book is called Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners in Today's Classroom. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And then so, Emily, to begin with, I mean, what are 2E kids, right? And why do they need a special kind of form of education? Yeah, so twice exceptional is a term that means somebody who both has advanced cognitive ability or um, cognitive giftedness and has another type of disability. So um, this can cause a lot of difficulties because sometimes you have the gifts that mask the struggles. And that means that those twice exceptional people don't get identified um, for what their needs are. And, and people don't understand why they might be struggling in certain areas, but it's because they don't see all of it. They can compensate with that giftedness. Or the flip side is that their struggles mask their gifts. And then in that case, they're not challenged appropriately. They have kind of this disconnect between what they recognize as their ability and what, um, you know, and how they're performing in different environments, whether they're students in the classroom or adults in the workplace or at home. There are a lot of different factors that influence that. Yeah, so, yeah when, when I was a child, um, I dealt with uh, extreme anxiety, right? And mm -hmm. I wonder um, how, how would you deal with a student who's exhibiting symptoms of anxiety in order to sort of bring out can I ask just a clarifying question? Do you mean like Please. within school too? Like no, in yeah, terms with, of the test taking? Yeah. With test taking, with uh, dealing with the other kids in class, things like that. I mean, there were times I was very social, but there were other times I was extremely uh, nervous and I felt like that would inhibit me from, uh, well, I mean, this is sort of retrospectively looking back. Uh, I felt like it would affect my, my learning capability because I was so concerned with what is this person thinking? What does that person think? What's my relationship to this person? Right. And it felt like a, like a layer uh, keeping me away from just focusing on what I needed to focus on. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so what, what, was your, what was your question about that so, experience? So how, um, how would you deal with a student who's, uh, who's exhibiting like symptoms of, of anxiety? Uh, mm -hmm. How do you sort of mediate that so this way they can concentrate more on, on the actual uh, learning? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think with any diagnosis or identification that we're talking about, one of the key components that's most important is helping kids to be aware of what their struggles are so that they can self-advocate. So developing a really strong rapport with my students when I was in the classroom or my clients when I'm in the counseling office really involves helping them feel comfortable recognizing what their struggles are and verbalizing those or finding a way to communicate them in some way so that we can problem solve together. I think allowing kids to have that autonomy where they are really um, having a sense of control is one of the best things we can do to help them diminish that anxiety because a lot of anxiety is really based on uncertainty. 
and um, just discomfort about not knowing what to expect or how to act. So if we can help them eliminate some of that confusion or concern or uncertainty, that will help them overcome some of that anxiety. But that all starts with communication. And it starts with them kind of really trying to identify what those what those areas are that cause them anxiety. Is it mm -hmm. test anxiety? Is it um, having to read in front of the class? Is it um, <laughs> going out to recess and, you know, having to interact with kids? Like, what is it that's really causing that anxiety? And then getting to the bottom of it. But it's hard because kids in general don't have great, um, great awareness of those things. So you see it come out as different, in different ways, um, you know, psychosomatic complaints of stomach aches or headaches or, um, you know, just um, other types of like behavior, like irritability or, or anger, you know, those types of things. And they don't always know like what's beneath that. And so that's kind of really important. And I think sometimes adults don't realize that there might be something beneath that as well. Right. And so they, they kind of take it at face value and then you're not really able to solve the problem. Um. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of a session that I had with the client last night, which uh, obviously I talked to you, Emily, about. Um, so we uh, we pretty much talked about kind of like what his career trajectory was and kind of how he got to where he got to. And essentially, we talked about like what it was like when he was a kid in school. And then he's like, you know, when I was a kid, I remember thinking like, wow, man, like I'm such a fuck up. Like, it's so terrible. Like, I, I don't even know like why anybody kind of like gives me any attention or even kind of gives me a chance. Right. And so when we kind of talked about his childhood, right, I told him, I said, you know, it's kind of obvious to me that you're a gift person and i said look this is really not even debatable at this point if you want i said go take an iq test i mean it's you know if you mm -hmm. want proof of it but i was like this isn't the debate right like you really are a gifted person and i told him about what it means to be 2e and he was literally like blown away by this he's like that's insane he's like nobody had ever ever like told me like what first of all what 2e was and then nobody ever told me that i even had the potential for anything so he's like when i was a kid i was just labeled as a fuck up like that's who i was that's kind of how his teachers saw him how his parents saw him and what was so troubling about that like, you know, kind of well, for me hearing it and obviously for him living it was the fact that like you had this kid with so much potential and like now, right, in a way, and this had nothing to do with me because like, I mean, he's already, in a, he's an adult, right? So he's a grown man. He has this like, you know, great career. Um, he's been able to actualize his potential. He's had great coaches mm -hmm. and somewhere down the line, he's also had great teachers. But the thing is, it's like when he was a kid, so he came from an environment was number one, really troubling. So we had parents who were pretty much I mean, I don't want to say like too much about it because I don't want to, I don't know how much he'd be okay with me revealing, but like there was trauma in his life, right? So we had neglectful parents who just you know, completely could not care about him. Um, then we had teachers who were just like, oh, well, that's just like, you know, he's just who he is, right? He doesn't give a shit. Um, maybe he's incompetent and capable. You know, he had all of these terrible labels on him. But then now as he's kind of growing up and trying to figure out like, who is he? What is he capable of? He's still stuck in that mind state of, oh, well, I must be a fuck up and I have to constantly prove myself. But the interesting thing about him is that as he's been proving himself, he's actually not taking into consideration the fact that now there's this plethora of evidence that you are a gifted <laughs> person, right? So I'm like, it's obvious to me. And I'm like, and I promise you, anybody who knows what to look for, your bosses, supervisors, whoever, it's going to be obvious to them too. But in his mind, right, he still has this kind of mind state and this, um, I guess you would call it maybe a mindset, I don't know, for lack of a better term, that I am that fuck up, that I am that kid that nobody wanted and nobody believed in. So like now, as you kind of look at this trajectory, Right, 
he can't kind of make sense of it. He's like, well, maybe this isn't really success, right? Because how do I kind of make sense of the confusion that on the one hand, I'm this fuck up, but on the other hand, maybe I'm successful. Mm -hmm. So Emily, do you see that? Do you see that a lot of people where, yeah, as they kind of grow up, they can't make sense of like, which, what label makes sense for them? Yeah, definitely. First of all, a lot of adults right now who are parents end up recognizing their own types of neurodiversity when their kids get diagnosed. And it's like a light bulb goes on for them. They realize, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I went through as a child and nobody knew what it was or knew what to call it. And they do have this internalized feeling of inadequacy because it was such a struggle and they were unsupported and the and the messages that they internalized were that they were lazy or unmotivated or um you know not living up to their potential whatever that might be and that's really hard to undo when you internalize those messages as part of your identity when you're a child um i i think that that happens quite a lot i i see i mean i see it often and i think um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to talk to those adults. And when they do have that awareness all of a sudden, that's when some of that healing can begin. And that's where they can start to, um, you know, kind of be more honest with themselves about what the impact of that environment was as they were growing up and try to, try to undo some of that, try to, try to rebuild. And it even helps them to be less judgmental with their own children, right? Oh, yeah. Cause, yeah, because especially if uh, they weren't aware of their own uh, idiosyncrasies or, or their own, um, uh, how should I say, like, if they had any issues uh, learning as well, right? Yeah, like I disabilities, mean, right? Right, disabilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, back in the day, and it's probably not that, not that far away, right? Yeah, you would probably they'd probably look at their children and also think the same thing those teachers were thinking. Oh, they're lazy, they're unmotivated, they can't focus. Something is wrong with them. I try everything and, mm -hmm. and all of that. But when you're aware of these things, then then you know you could take sort of a different approach. Or also, at least if you're non-judgmental, you won't be putting labels on your child that'll put them further and further away from where you'd like them to be or where they would like themselves to be. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And it's like in yeah. the conversation. Yeah, oh, so uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I you know, um, two thoughts about what, what you were just saying. And the first is that when we're talking about these, these um, you know, identifications or disabilities, you know, from a, the neurodiversity framework, we're often talking about attention deficits. We're talking about autism. And what is very confusing specifically for twice exceptional individuals is that when you have this cognitive ability, you can see that they that they're that they get a lot of these things. And so then when their behavior or what they're doing, their executive functioning skills or their emotional regulation skills, when those don't match with what this cognitive ability shows, it's very it's very confusing for adults and we often treat it like it's a behavioral issue. And so we try to discipline it when really it's a neurologically based deficit that we need to support. And, you know, you mentioned about how parents are sometimes, you know, putting these labels on their kids. One of the conversations I frequently have with, with parents 
is the fear about using a label or a diagnosis. Like, well, we don't really want to label our child as ADHD. We don't really want to label our child as autistic. I'm like, well, they're already being labeled. They're being labeled with all, it's like, why don't we just call it what it is so that they don't have all of these negative messages that are, that um, they're internalized and they can understand themselves better. They can recognize, well, this is how my brain is wired. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm dyslexic. I struggle with, you know, this, but, but now I can find the compensatory strategies or the accommodations that will allow me to be successful as opposed to just thinking like I'm bad or I'm broken or I'm dumb. Right. Yeah. And, and what I was thinking, like when you guys were talking about that, going back to my client is that, so in terms of like reframing and trying to understand how, you know, on the one hand, how is it that you could have been, let's say labeled a fuck up as a kid. And then on the other hand, how you could be successful as an adult. I think the best way maybe for him to understand that, and then this is obviously based on the conversation that we had was for him to kind of reshape and reframe what it actually meant to have been labeled a fuck up. And so essentially what I kind of told him, I said, look, I mean, obviously I wasn't a part of your childhood environment. I mean, I didn't know your teachers. I didn't know your parents, but they were wrong. I was like, they were just wrong, right? So they just, they, they didn't see it, right? So when you had, let's say when it came to his parents, right? They didn't care to see it. They didn't care to figure out like whether or not he was gifted in some way or just in general, like whether or not he had any particular strengths, like they were just busy with their own issues and their own kind of mental health struggles. And then when you had his teachers, right? You had these, uh, I mean, I'm hesitant to say this because this is also just a part of the context of the time and the era. So it's not necessarily their fault, but they were kind of poorly trained, right? And they didn't really know what to look for. So what they're looking for is results. And they're saying to themselves, okay, well, you know, this is, these are his test grades. Uh, this is kind of just what he produces in general in the classroom. So he's kind of like a special needs, you know, sort of like underdeveloped kid, like this is just who he is. So what I try to kind of tell them is that, they had a misunderstanding of what you had to offer and essentially your gift, because in their minds, you had, again, parents who just didn't care either way, whether you were gifted. Mm -hmm. And then you also had teachers who were just like, oh, well, these are the results. So that's just, that must be indicative of who he is, right? That's like kind of his potential. And so for him, right, instead of now looking at it as like, oh, like I'm a fuck up or even like I'm worthless or useless, or uh, let's say I have nothing to offer. Now he's just kind of like, hopefully, right? I mean, we still have you know more to talk about, but hopefully he's now looking at it as, uh, you know, kind of more in the sense of, oh, they just couldn't see what I had to offer that it's like it was always there and the potential was always there essentially but they just didn't know what to look for and obviously with my parents they just didn't care to see it yeah yeah and that's and and um you know I I, I think about the kids who and the adults who don't ever who are unable to ever really have that awareness who never necessarily break free of it because yeah. um you know you know how important those self-beliefs are like, what is the narrative that we tell ourselves about who we are as a person? And how does that influence what chances we take or we don't take or what paths we pursue or don't pursue? And, um, you know, I, I think having good self-awareness is just really important. And then, and then the next step of that is just being able to allow for vulnerability and authenticity and collaboration with the people who can help us, you know, asking for help. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and that's obviously, I think, pretty broad across, you know, no matter what somebody's label or non-label is. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, being self-aware is incredibly important, right? Uh, if, if, for example, you know that um, you're looking for, this is just one example, if you're looking for uh, proof or evidence of your existing beliefs, if you, if you knew that's something that you do. Then you might start to question, well, what are my beliefs? What do, what do I believe about myself? What do I believe about the world? Right. right? And then 
take that to a, to another step, right? Like then where, what directions are my beliefs taking me to? Mm -hmm. And then what other beliefs could I have? Or if I had this other kind of belief, what, where, where else could I go? That's also general, but that's important. Can I ask you a personal question? And sure. obviously you're not obligated to answer it. Okay. Sure. So, so since sure. you, okay. since you mentioned struggling with anxiety, right? Did that affect the way you saw yourself as a student or just in terms of your ability to perform? Well, for me, uh, I gained a little bit more awareness in my early 20s. Uh, for example, um, before I used to just chalk it up to uh, like any, anything that was wrong. It was just, I, I would get, how, do I, how should I put this? I'm trying to organize this. Um, I would get stuck in the automaticity of my thoughts. I'd be a little mm -hmm. bit neurotic and let my mind drag me here, drag me there. And it was very chaotic. But then when I kind of... Um, understood that I was kind of following a narrative in my head that I didn't necessarily have to believe in what it was I was thinking, right? Right. That maybe these thoughts are coming to me automatically. I wouldn't choose to think them. Maybe these are ruminating thoughts. Um, maybe, maybe I, I should distance myself from this narrative that's going on in my head and there's a way to do that. Right. Then I started to feel less anxious, started to be able to have better relationships with people, yeah. stop thinking about what does this person think of me? What do I think of this person? And then kind of try to be a little uh, more uh, non-judgmental. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But just in terms of your anxiety, do you feel like it affected the way you kind of saw your ability or interfere with it? Um, I mean, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, if I, if I yeah, if, if I was too worried about uh, how I came off or how well I performed or anything like that, I mean, it just felt like a layer between me and, and the goal, right. in a sense. I don't know if that's clear enough. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. But it sounds like what you're saying is that, like, obviously, in some way, just having, um, again, just going back to the concept of 2E, right? Having this disability sort of impacted the way you saw your actually, your ability. I mean, I, I, I suppose. Yeah, I have to think a bit more about it, mm -hmm. um, to be honest. I but yeah, I I. I venture to think so sure well emily yeah. do you see that often in your practice where so somebody who is struggling with either learning and i'm assuming the answer is yeah. yes but I, it's still worth asking yeah. uh right mm -hmm. if a person does have like add kind of anxiety um any particular learning disability that automatically they inflate or no not inflate um conflated with their cognitive ability and they say oh well i'm just not smart enough yeah it's interesting i think um as you're sitting here talking about anxiety anxiety is kind of an interesting um it doesn't depending on how the anxiety is manifesting and what a person has about their beliefs, just about their cognitive ability in general, it can actually lead to like perfectionism and kind of an over, like, like a drive to make sure I always succeed. I have to succeed. I have to do really well, right. um, which is, is detrimental in its own way, but it's, um, it's almost like the, the flip. Like, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm, you know, dumb or can't do this. It's that, well, if I'm smart, I have to always do this. And, right. you know, that has its own, <laughs> its own difficulties. Um, but, you know, it, you were, you know, let me just kind of share an example from me growing up. You know, part of the reason I do this work is because I grew up, you know, twice exceptional. So I was identified for, you know, as gifted when I was in second grade, but I really was struggling in school. And so then when I was in fifth grade, my mom, who was a special educator, um, had me assessed for ADHD and I was mm -hmm. identified with ADHD when I was in fifth grade. 
And this was at a time we didn't have that term twice exceptional. That wasn't a thing that people talked about. And also girls were never really diagnosed with ADD at that time. It was just pretty rare to, to see that. But I also had a lot of anxiety because the ADHD was impacting my ability to function in the classroom. And um, I had a lot of psychosomatic symptoms. Somebody reminded me of this the other day when I was talking about it. But I used to I used to go to the nurse and in our in our building we had this big step of state this big stairway that went from like where the primary grades were to where the intermediate grades were in the offices and everything and there were these big windows uh, alongside this hallway and I just remember having this memory of walking up those stairs to go to the nurse's office and holding my breath so that I could make my temperature go up so that I could leave school like I'm like if I hold my breath and then she uses the thermometer mm -hmm. to put in my mouth to measure my temperature it's going to be hotter so I could <laughs> So I can escape. You have to be too e for that. Yes. <laughs> and it's like I didn't know, but you know, even knowing that I was ADHD, then as an adult, so I took medication for ADHD, and I, I you know, I got by in school. I did okay. I didn't. I wasn't great. Um, there were some grades that were harder than others, and and you know, by the time I graduated and went to college, I was like, well, I don't really know if that's an accurate diagnosis. I think maybe I'm just kind of anxious and have a lot of thoughts. And I basically went, you know. I don't know, my entire 20s and a good part of my 30s too, medicating and treating and doing therapy for my anxiety and depression and ignoring the component of the ADHD. And then when my youngest son was born afterwards and it's like, I've got a counseling practice and I've got all of these projects that are going on. And I went and I talked to my doctor and I said, you know, I was diagnosed as ADHD as a kid. What do you think? Should we, you know, would it be worth looking at that or trying some medicine? And finally, I went back on my ADHD medication and it, it changed my life. It changed my life. I didn't have the awareness of it as a kid. I don't know, you know, I don't know. I don't really remember what it was like when I was or wasn't on my medicine. I, school was just always hard for me. But most of my anxiety now is gone because the medication helps me with all those executive functioning skills and the disorganization, which was the source of most of my <laughs> anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, but but again, it did really impact my 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 beliefs about what I could or couldn't do and motivation, you know, and being able to properly recognize that and treat it for what it is has really just been, um, it's just really changed my life. I mean, and that's within the last, you know, six or seven years or whatever. Oh, wow. And that's so just talking about the actual steps, right, in terms of like what your book outlines, how would teaching differ for twice exceptional kids as opposed to obviously people in the other population? Mm -hmm. Um, well, the bottom line is that you have to really investigate what is influencing their performance. And we want to use their strengths to leverage their difficulties, you know, to, to, to build in those areas where they're struggling. So here's an example. I, I would say there are a lot of things I think that are relevant for for most kids when you're when you're working to build um, an area of weakness, and that is you know operating from an area of interest, something that they're motivated to learn about, and that's not necessarily specific to twice exceptional kids. Some of the areas where you would see that, that twice exceptional kids need something different, for example, is that they might need accommodations mm -hmm. in a higher level class. So a lot of times, especially in middle school and high school, you might see kids who are placed in like an honors class or an AP class. And a lot of those teachers will say, 
well, I don't make accommodations in my class because this is an upper level class. I'm not going to, you know, give extended time on tests or on assignments. I'm right. not going to, you know, provide copies of the notes. But that is, well, honestly, it's illegal <laughs> because it's discrimination based on a disability, according to IDEA. Mm -hmm. And um, but but just because, like, let's say a child is dyslexic. Well, they should still be able to take an upper level class if they have the cognitive ability to understand it. But why can't we give them an audiobook? Why can't we provide them a copy of the notes from the class? You know, these are just basic accommodations. And I think that's probably more than anything where we see um, that what we need to shift in education to support these students. You know, not taking a challenging course load um, is not an accommodation because then you know, the kids get bored, they're, fr you know, frustrated. We need to help kids be challenged across the board. And I think that for, um, for twice exceptional kids, the, the easiest thing often is just to, um, you know, try to put them in an easier class and say, well, this will be fine. And it's like, it might be easier, but what are they learning? Going back to talking about that perfectionism, you know, one of the reasons I feel like there's a lot of perfectionism in high ability individuals. I don't necessarily think that it is so much that it's just innate. I mean, there might be a component of that, but for people who are um, in an environment, especially when they're very young and they learn very quickly and they kind of just absorb information, they internalize the message that learning is easy and that they're smart. And this becomes part of that narrative that they tell themselves. Mm -hmm. And so then if they, if they're not challenged appropriately, if they don't learn that struggle, if they're not moving at a pace that is appropriate for how they can internalize the information, they're not going to know how to handle it when they do. So so finding appropriate challenge and making sure that kids are 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 in a academically rigorous program while we're also supporting those areas of difficulty is really what's important to help them be successful just later on in life once they leave school as well. Right, I see. So is it that these teachers are thinking, well, I, this person doesn't deserve accommodations because they're not special, right? It's like, it, they're all, they, you know, all of these students in this class are coming from, like, let's say an equal or on an equal playing field. But the idea mm -hmm. is if we're giving this person extended time, that means in some way they're special and they deserve something just for being them, right? Just for the person, yeah. that they, their essence, even though that's not exactly what the requests are for. Right. Well, I, th I think they feel like it's not fair. Right. And I'm like, well, okay, but is it okay? So, you know, <laughs> we put up we put up a ramp for people who need to use a wheelchair for mobility. We give people glasses if they can't read, <laughs> right. like if they can't see, and and but we don't give everyone glasses. We don't. We don't. You know. I mean, like we. It, it's the accommodation that's that is necessary for that person to access the curriculum. Right. Why would we? Why would we prevent that? I, I was actually, I'm going to just go off on a little bit of a tangent. So I was invited sure. to be on a, a panel recently for, there's this big tech company and they do this thing called Relativity Fest each year. And it was a virtual conference. And so they invited me to be on a panel talking about neurodiversity in the workplace. And so my, where I was coming from was the mental health aspect, but also that transition from, you know, school into, into career. And the other two people that were on there, one of them is the um, autism and disability inclusion hiring person for Microsoft. And the other one was this guy who um, started this company called Ultranauts, which is a placement company for people who are neurodivergent, specifically, like I think 75% of even their staff is autistic. Um, 
but the guy, the guy, and I I should remember his name, but I don't, but the guy who's in charge of this, who started this company called Ultranauts, one of the things that he mentioned was, if we're in a situation where we're having to provide accommodations for people with disabilities all the time and kind of change how we're doing things, that is a systemic issue that says that the system is broken. Those accommodations should be available to everybody at any time because there's a reason why it makes people more successful. So for example, in the hiring process, you know, if, if, if we just make it so that and actually, this was from the from the gentleman who was at Microsoft, and he was talking about how they changed their hiring process specifically. You know, we don't require everybody to go through an interview that's face to face and verbal. If they would prefer to text for their first interview for their interviews, like that's fine. Wow. We used to have people come in and do some tech stuff and like show us how they could code and do some things on their computers or on a computer. But we had them come in and use our stuff. It's like now we just tell them, do it on your own computer. Do you want to do it via Zoom? Do you want to come in and do it? Whatever works. And specifically for people who are neurodivergent, having those accommodations in place is really useful for them. You can see their ability better. But really, <laughs> why can't everyone have those options? Like, it's not necessarily special treatment. It's kind of like, what if we just said to the entire class, if you need a copy of the notes, <laughs> here's a copy of the notes. If you, if you need extended time for a test, I mean, that's a little bit tricky only because then we have these standardized tests that require kids to right. do things in a certain amount of time. But still... What are we really measuring? Are we measuring your ability to understand the concept and respond to a prompt in writing and show your critical thinking? Mm -hmm. How does processing speed, like processing speed is not <laughs> like that. Like if I'm in the workplace, if I'm in real life and I need more time to do something, I'm just going to take more time to do something. So when we put these false time constraints on it, it really isn't relevant. So. So my point is, I guess, when we're talking about providing accommodations in environments for neurodivergent people, why wouldn't we just do that for everybody? You know, what if I'm just having a, a, a crappy day and I need yeah. the notes from the teacher? Like, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, the world that we live in and how we feel like people really have to deserve, you know, special treatment. Like, do they really deserve it or not? It's like, well, why don't we just make the world a kinder, more accepting, accessible place for everyone? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I use the ramp when I'm walking up instead of walking up the stairs because I'm tired <laughs> like that doesn't, you know, but it wasn't built for me. Right. It was. And I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting way to flip that understanding of what accommodations should be like. Absolutely. And plus audiobooks, Right. Is, is that really mm -hmm. cheating? Mm -hmm. No. Right. That's no. just a different way of processing the information. Right. And you're still going to attempt to process it and work with it, engage with it. Uh, learn from it right so it's it's not cheating right no There's, yeah yeah right. what's so some, and some people would really get stuck on that yeah and what's so interesting is now it makes me think of one of my clients who's uh who's in his early 20s at this point and he's in college so really bright kid but what's so interesting is that like when it comes to essays, like he knocks them out of the park, like he'll get like incredibly high grades for it. But because he has an, a severe anxiety disorder, what happens is when he goes to class and like goes to take these tests. So he'll have like a bunch of options, obviously, on a multiple choice test. And because obviously with any anxiety disorder, what's the struggle? Like Emily said, uncertainty, right? So when he sees a bunch of choices, he's like, oh, OK, I think I know the answer, but maybe I don't know. Maybe it's this other answer, even though I'm 20 percent sure about this one. And like, let's say, I don't know, 
like 80% sure of the other one. What if I'm wrong, right? And then he starts getting in his head and overthinking. And then what happens is obviously he does like average on like these multiple choice tests. So I would even wonder if it were possible to, I don't know, maybe like a dual test would be too difficult. And I get that. But like, let's say for somebody with an anxiety disorder and who's working through it, I mean, it's not like he's not mm-hmm. doing anything about it. So for somebody who's working through an anxiety disorder, would there be an alternative way for them to succeed in school without having to take multiple choice, multiple choice exams? Because obviously those are the exams that literally fuel the thing that they're trying to get help for. Yeah. Well, there, there's some great ways to do that. Um, there's a, a guy I follow on Twitter, Blake Harvard is his name, and he, I'm not going to remember all of the things, but he does, um, he's an educator and has some really great ideas. But one of the things that he does with multiple choice tests or multiple choice assignments, I'm not sure if it's test or how he does it, but like, for example, you have to, you choose what answer you think is correct, but then you also have to like say, okay, choose one that you know is wrong and tell me why you know it's wrong. Mm. Choose one that could be right and tell me why you think it could be right. Mm -hmm. So again, so you're having to do some critical thinking about the multiple choice answers. Like what is it about this particular choice? Why did you choose this answer as the correct answer? So it's still multiple choice, but then you're able to see that thinking a little bit better. So to me, what I would do if I was in the classroom, if I had to use a multiple choice test, I would use a multiple choice test. But then if say there was somebody like your client, you know, if they were really struggling with it, I would, um, you know, give them their test back. Like maybe, I don't know if as a retake or just to earn some, some of those points back and say, if you can go through this process for these Mm -hmm. and show me what your thinking was, you know, then you can, then you can earn those points back because it's, again, what is the learning objective? The learning objective is to show that you comprehend that material. And so there are multiple ways to do that. So if it doesn't work for one student to use a multiple choice format, let's find an alternative. Right. And the interesting thing about multiple choice exams is like the whole point of it is to get you to kind of question yourself. So when you have these choices, like, you know, A through E or whatever, you also, you always have these choices that are very similar. So if you have a person who's struggling with an anxiety disorder and they see a bunch of similar choices, they're going to freak mm-hmm. out. They're going to be like, wait, yeah. how do I know? How do I know? Right. They're going to be yeah. like, wait, I think I know it's this one. But wait a minute, what if I'm wrong? What if my memory is deceiving me, right? That's what he goes through. So in his mind, he like questions his memory because he's like, okay, it looks like it could be this answer, but this answer sounds similar. And what if I'm just wrong and it's not this yeah. answer, it's this other answer. And then he freaks out. And then like 10 minutes later, he finally just puts anything on paper. And I'm like, oh, that's like so terrible because it's not actually yeah. testing what he knows. Yeah. You know, I think one of the interesting things about test anxiety that I realized as I was researching and doing this book, and I don't know that I realized this ahead of time, although, of course, it makes perfect sense. And maybe you guys do know this, but like test anxiety versus generalized anxiety often are kind of two separate things. Like they can be, I mean, interrelated, but test anxiety is a lot closer to like performance anxiety, like stage fright, than other types of generalized anxiety where it's more the overthinking or the worrying, which to me as a as a therapist was really a useful thing to realize because I need to work with those kids differently. If it's truly test anxiety, like if it's only in those certain environments, that it's not just about anxiety about, you know, not doing well in school or what, you know, more of that generalized anxiety. Um, anyway, I just think that that's an interesting little, little delineation between those two. Yeah. I would. Yeah, go ahead. And it's also just fascinating uh, going back a little bit to the interview process, let's say, you know, somebody's interviewing for Microsoft and they don't feel doing, you know, comfortable doing a face-to-face interview and they have the option of doing a Zoom interview or texting or, right. or something like that. That's, that's fantastic because I, I, even knowing my, I mean, I'm better at it now. I've worked on this, but in general, 
if somebody had the option, okay, you know, I could interview a little bit differently. I don't have to worry about necessarily my social aspect of how I come off. I can actually work. I can actually just demonstrate my ability at this thing, at this task. Right, right, right. And and that's 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 a great opportunity. Um, and even for the company, the company that's hiring you, you know, this reminds me of, uh, and I don't mean to get too into this because I know it's obviously not the point of the conversation, but when we think of football, right, uh, the New England Patriots head coach, Bill, Be Bill Belichick, right? So the reason why he's such a genius is because he's able to spot talent where other people would overlook it. So the thing that makes him so special is that he'll find a person like a player and he'll say, oh, I get it. Like, this is what you're good at, right? Maybe you won't be able to play, you know, for the vast majority of the 60 minute game. However, you're good for maybe a handful to eight plays and those handful to eight plays could literally decide the game for us so right. what you're yeah and it's like what you're seeing with these companies that are kind of like they're not rigid right they're willing to look at the bigger picture in terms of what people have to offer they're actually benefiting too because they're bringing on board talent that's really useful or could be potentially useful whereas opposed to like okay let's say if i'm weaning out people who don't let's say i don't know who um only perform well on interviews then like what am i actually missing out on Absolutely. And and that's what I think is is very cool about the neurodiversity movement is that we're recognizing that there are abilities and skills in people who maybe don't fit what is the quote unquote expected, you know, norm for what for what that is. Um, because, yeah, I mean, autistic individuals specifically, it's like their social communication is one of the areas that many of them struggle with. So yeah, an interview is probably, you're not going to really see their best work, but if you give them an opportunity to show it in different ways, another accommodation that I hear that hiring companies or um, that HR people are doing is they're providing interview questions in advance. Wow. Like, why does it have to be a surprise? Yeah. Like, to, I, I mean, and, 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 but for somebody who has slower processing and needs more time, especially with communication to think about how they're going to respond, like, let's, let's do that. Let like, because honestly, like, so, so if they go and Google it or whatever, <laughs> what's the downside here? Like they, if they are able to go and be resourceful and figure it out and give a response, like it shows that, you know, they're not going to go and find, a, a, you know, some rote memorization about whatever that, that question might be. They're going to have to go through and, and take their own experiences and integrate information and put it together. And so you're going to get a feel for how they would process through that. Which again, it might even be a more realistic representation. Maybe you right. see the person who comes who comes and doesn't prepare whatsoever, even though they've been given the interview questions. Like maybe that's something that is, you know, you have to kind of sort through. But I don't know. I think I think we just are very like this is the way we've always done it. So therefore that's how we always have to do it. And that's just we need to break free of that. Yeah, and that's what my college mentor, Tim Stroop, he used to do that for us. Like, uh, so I took his ethics and law class. And what he used to do for us, um, which is kind of interesting because uh, I guess it's sort of, it's kind of not just, maybe not counterintuitive is the word, but it's definitely counter to what, you know, is the norm in schools. So what he would do, so he had two exams. So he had a midterm and a final. And what he would do is he would actually give us the questions in advance, right? And everybody's like, oh, like, this is so cool. Like, we could cheat, right? No. So why he gave you the questions in advance was because the expectation for what you're going to present on that exam was exponentially higher than what it had been in, let's say, if you were taking a multiple choice exam. So you had to know whatever. So he gave you eight questions, right? You had to choose two for the exam. And those two questions, you better know thoroughly what those answers are. And you can't bring in like notes or anything to the exam. So you better really focus on those questions and create a great argument for that answer. So and I love that. I was like, yes, yeah. that actually makes a ton of sense where he gives you the chance to think through it. But the idea is that like, no, you can't half-ass it. Right. Well, and, and again, 
what's the learning objective? That's that's often what I go back to when we're talking about twice exceptional kids and, and teachers are like, well, they can't do, you know, they keep losing their homework or whatever. And it's like, and so, and I don't accept late work. Well, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or or teachers who like take points off for the kids who forget to put their name on their paper. Like, why are, what are you grading here? Are you grading their executive functioning skills? Because I don't think that's the learning objective of the class. And right. is that fair for that to be reflected in their GPA or on their report card or whatever? Right. Um, it's like, what is the learning objective? So for that class, the learning objective was to really thoroughly, deeply understand that concept and that topic and be able to go in and write about it. Great. Prepare for that. Know exactly what you're preparing for. Going into a test shouldn't be like, a, a guessing game like well maybe i'll study this and maybe it'll be that i mean if we want to, kids to learn if we want adults to learn we should tell them clearly clearly what they are learning right absolutely and so just to switch gears a little bit so this has been a kind of like i guess a pretty topical issue in the past couple of days i mean it's been pretty mm. popular on twitter i uh, yeah i think so you know what i'm gonna i ask know where you. you're going okay okay so i'm gonna read i'm gonna read a little snippet of this and emily i want to get your thoughts on this okay so uh new york city's process for admitting young children into the gifted and talented programs will change this year because of disruptions caused by the pandemic and growing opposition to the high stakes exam the city has used to evaluate four-year-olds um let's see okay so let me see uh, the announcement caps weeks of uncertainty about how New York City would admit toddlers into gifted programs amid the pandemic. Earlier this year, Mayor Bill de Blasio said he would offer the gifted program for just one more year to avoid disruption to parents, but an educational par- panel that typically acts as a rubber stamp for the mayor rejected his plan to renew the gifted testing contract for a final year that left the city hall scrambling to find another temporary solution. Okay, so what they're doing basically is they're going to overhaul the entire gifted program. So what they're going to do for this upcoming year is they're essentially going to have a lottery system where it's now going to be based on for the perspective of particular pre-K teachers. And so what they would do is they would recommend certain children and those children would then be pretty much placed in a lottery system where now it's like if you get into a particularly, um, let's say a gifted school or a gifted program, the idea there is it's going to be kind of based on luck, right? Right. And based on the subjective evaluation of a person. So what they're saying is essentially that these programs are causing more segregation than there already is. And I guess I'm wondering before even saying kind of what I think about this, (laughs) Emily, what do you think about the idea that this seems to be a nationwide thing where gifted programs are now being challenged and in some places obviously being phased out altogether? Yeah, it's a problem. And, And what I would say is the places that are doing this are doing it in the name of equity. Right. Because historically, the identification processes for um, putting kids into accelerated learning programs, whatever that might be, has often been based on teacher referral or parent nomination. And the problem is that when you are testing four-year-olds, first of all, there is a huge gap there based on early life experiences and how kids are going to perform. So research really shows that cognitive ability tests like IQ tests, IQ doesn't really stabilize until about a child's maybe like seven or eight. That's usually where you can get a really stable, stable IQ score because when they're younger, like they might, it could go either way. It could be a little, it could be inflated or it could be deflated just based on their environment and their experiences. But as they get older, it, it, it stabilizes. It is true that black and brown students are underrepresented in many of these programs. It is also true that by taking away gifted education programs, you are not making it more fair for those students. 
right. it's almost like saying you know we're i don't know like like that that these students don't deserve something because realistically what they are doing is they are going to even widen the gap of discrepant of of um discrepancy between what is available because you know what all of those rich white <laughs> kids and middle class white kids are going to do and and you know the asian families that are really in, involved in the education process and and really motivated about you know test prep and everything else they're going to go and they're going to pay for the private school they're going to pay yep. for the advanced tutoring they're going to those kids are still going to get those benefits who's not going to get the benefits the black and brown kids who already aren't getting them right. and there are some things that are really cool that are happening in other districts to make that process more equitable so one of those things is called universal screening which basically means in a school district at certain grade levels like say mm -hmm. kindergarten second grade and fourth grade or whatever you test every single student in that district every single one they all get the same test to look for those kids who are above and beyond it eliminates the possibility that a teacher who sees you know the black child in their classroom is interpreting their behavior as disruptive or whatever right. because it doesn't fit their social expectation you know that child might not get referred by that teacher um, but if you're just giving a test that's looking at cognitive ability, they're going to have the chance to perform just like everybody else. You yeah. have a child who's disabled, who's twice exceptional. You know, that child might not be referred by their teacher. They might not be picked out as the cream of the crop, even based on like classroom grades for a variety of reasons. But if you give a universal test to every student, that's going to pop up. You're going to see them. You're not going to miss those students. Another factor is what's called using local norms. So basically, one of the difficulties um, that sometimes programs run into, so I, I taught in a district here in, in St. Louis called um, Hazelwood School District. It's the second largest school district in the, in the area outside of St. Louis Public Schools, and it's a very diverse district. Um, we had a center for our gifted education program, and, um, but the schools, like I had, I was like the teacher representative for two different schools. One of them was 100% um, on free and reduced lunch. 99% African-American um, and the other one was a much more just diverse kind of balanced population. Mm -hmm. We often had kids qualify from this other program. Again, we, we were not using universal screening at this time. This was probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so, but kids, more kids would qualify from there, but this one school that was, you know, didn't have as much, you know, economic stability and, and had a lot of, you know, transient students that were kind of in and out. We didn't have a lot of kids qualify there. But what what local norms says is that you should base how you qualify kids based on how they are performing compared to the same peers that are in their buildings or within their district, because otherwise you're using these nationally normed tests. Mm -hmm. um, and so but, you know, if you live in a pocket that is economically disadvantaged and doesn't have a lot of opportunities it's unlikely that you're going to be able to perform as well as another kid so so when you use local norms and you just find the top kids obviously the top kids in any environment need something more right. they need something in addition to the regular curriculum and that doesn't matter where you are so that is one way to increase equity and access to these advanced learning programs um, mm -hmm. you know and, and they're just 
a lot of really creative, great ways to make sure that kids are getting opportunities and New York City's plan to just ditch the whole thing or, or to have teachers in the classroom trying to teach to like um, seven or eight different levels and differentiate. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, it's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. Yeah. Right, right. So just to, it's just for our audience to be clear, right? So it seems like the kind of vague outline, because they don't have anything concrete yet, but the vague outline right. of the enrichment program is that you would have all of these kids together. And then somehow, I'm not really sure this is going to happen, but somehow there's going to be special attention on the gifted kids. So like if they need like an accelerated program, it's somehow still going to be part of the same curriculum, yeah. but yet In the not. same classroom In with the all of these classroom. other kids. One teacher is going to be teaching all of these kids and right. creating all of these lesson plans. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So sure. yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really sure exactly what de Blasio was thinking there, right? And then the other thing is that when you're thinking about even, um, so when you're thinking about, I guess, separation and segregation, right? I guess I even wonder what it would be like for the other kids, right? Because in their sense, or in their maybe understanding, they're thinking, I don't know, if, I don't know, maybe they don't care. But like, uh, you know, let's say if I were on the other end, I'd be thinking like, wow, man, like, so what they're doing to like, ease my kind of, uh, I, I guess, like not struggle or I don't even know if you call it that, but it's like to manage my own emotions, right? Which, you know, in some sense I should be able to kind of do on my own or figure out what my own strengths are. We're going to like, you know, kind of diminish these kids, right? In order to make me feel better about myself. Like in what world is that effective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, it's a, it is a, there are a lot of barriers in a lot of ways to putting an effective program like this in place and in making sure that education is equitable for all students. Um, I think, you know, take, instead of taking the sledgehammer and just destroying the whole thing, maybe we should be a little bit more, yeah, <laughs> a little bit more del delicate with the whole process and recognize that kids have different needs. And just like I was talking about earlier, you know, you can't ignore you can't ignore the needs of any student and, you know, and, and putting a child in a classroom where they're going to be unchallenged is, has its own set of issues, you know, yeah. and, I don't know. Yeah, and then you have a whole set of kids struggling with depression because they don't feel like mm -hmm. a they could fit in, right? And um, the other thing is that they're unchallenged, bored. Maybe there's like nothing about, and you know, I frequently talk about how a sense of pride is necessary for self esteem, and you mm -hmm. know, kid, obviously, adults, kids, we all need to feel like we're accomplishing something important and meaningful to our community. So you take these kids, you put them in a the classroom where they're bored out of their minds. Whatever their accomplishments are, they're pretty easy and not significant to them. Even probably to you know the teachers who are like, yeah, you know, I kind I know this is easy for you. I don't really know what to do about it. So where do they get that sense of pride from, right? How do they feel like they're a useful contributor to their community? If we're talking about like, let's say actualizing and manifesting everybody's strengths, we're now saying, oh, okay, their strengths don't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you think th this is, this could be wrong. We could just move on from this thought. Uh, do you think that it's actually a um, sort of a capital issue, like a money issue under the guise of an equity issue? Oh, that's it, a good question. How so? Well, only because we just, you know, went through a pandemic and I, I don't know, I, I wonder if just resources are a little more scarce. Um, I would, I, I think that this sure. has been, this has been something that New York City has been grappling with for several years, even before the pandemic. I think they kind of put it on sure. hold yeah. during the pandemic, you know, and there are a lot of people and it's interesting, you know, um, it, it's interesting because there are people who, well, on either side of the political spectrum, 
you you know it's so interesting when it's like when you have both ends of the political spectrum who are like against something or whatever it's like well wait a second maybe the solution is somewhere more in the middle but you know it's like in the uh, yes we need education to be equitable of course we do and of course we recognize that yes gifted ed programs have historically been predominantly made up of white and asian american kids like that is just what it has been Right. That is problematic. We need to fix it. It is a systemic issue. But 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 just saying, recognizing that it is a problem, the solution is not is just not to get rid of it. It, right. it yeah. needs no, to be. So it, it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed. But we can't. Um, again, really, if your if your primary concern there is equity. By getting rid of those options in public schools, which is where those disadvantaged students are going to access them, when you get rid of those opportunities, right. they are going to be at a further disadvantage. We have to we have to widen the scope of the programs and and cast a wider net, find more kids, provide more opportunities for those advanced learning you know options. Absolutely, and th and that's what's going to make the difference. That's what's going to that's what's going to you know, help those kids vault into success, you know, and, and, and overcome those other barriers that they face. Right. Yeah. And there was somebody, I don't remember who was exactly who the person was, but she said, well, you know, there was, um, I think it was in the Bronx community. She said, you know, a lot of the immigrant parents here, they didn't even know that there was a, the possibility of a test mm -hmm. or that it was available. Right. But that's not, I think about, um, it's not about the program itself. That's more about sort of, uh, I guess, getting the information yeah yeah them. so mm -hmm. it's it's more so about kind of re not recognition but it's more so about the fact that like there's not a kind of proliferation of information which yeah there absolutely should be so the idea there is that okay if let's say we have immigrant parents and maybe you know their kids are like let's say for them english is a second language why not administer the tests in multiple languages right. and i mean because yeah verbal reasoning doesn't depend on english as you know your main language right. that's not the point it's not what we're testing for so why not then have it in multiple languages right and why not have testing centers all around the country in in obviously impoverished communities, whatever upper class communities, where the idea is it's like you don't have to travel far for this exam. And you know, also maybe you don't need to have a teacher refer you either, because again, mm -hmm. who the hell knows what the teacher thinks of these kids? And by the way, who even knows if the teacher cares enough to even consider these programs? If let's say we're thinking of like um an environment where teachers are already struggling, where let's say, you know, it's a rough community. And then on top of that, they already have a workload. Do you really think they're going to sit there and think, oh, you know what? I got to figure out like which of these kids I should support hmm. and recommend for the gifted program. Like, come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I totally agree. I, I think that, um, yeah, th there's just so many, so many pieces to that, you know, and I would also thinking about what is the cultural capital that these families have? Do they know what questions to ask? Again, like you said, like, do they even realize that there's a program available? Um, you know, and there are a lot of a lot of those universal screening tests that I mentioned. Those are actually like nonverbal. You yep. really don't even have to be able to, you know, um, answer or or really even understand the instructions. Yep. The way that they are created is that they are um, even even the verbal components of these assessments um, are pictorial. So for example, like this is an old one, so I'm not giving away anything. This, I don't think this test is still published, but there was one test and it would show a picture of um, a chicken, but it was, this was visual, right? A chicken and then an egg 
and then a cow and then it was multiple choice like which one is it and so like you had to pick like the milk i think there's like milk i think there i don't know what else there was like maybe a horse or something else right 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 but Mm. but that technically is like a verbal skill it's a similarities and analogy and you have to understand what those concepts are but it's a way to present that that doesn't require me to explain it to you as a teacher or or to you know or for you to explain your thinking to me you can just choose it by looking at those images right yeah and uh, i mean what i might say now might be a little bit controversial but i do think it's true which is why i'm going to say it so Mm -hmm. i think i think the uh where people are focusing is wrong and again I'm going to just say this is definitely going to be controversial, but I think the people that we're after in terms of like, you know, the billionaires and the millionaires, these aren't necessarily gifted people, ma'am. These are people who, (laughs) these are people who've used, yeah, who've actually abused the meritocratic system, Mm -hmm. not used it fairly, right? These are people who found their ways into schools through, you know, maybe not necessarily bribery, right? I don't want to say that. Legacy enrollments or, you know, whatever. I mean, Right. They're connections. Right. So we have like, Mm -hmm. let's say even obviously, you know, the butt of all jokes, like the Trump family, like, are we saying that the Trumps are all gifted people? I mean, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I love balance rates. No, 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 this is good. No, you're right. I don't even think it's that controversial. Right. (laughs) Right. right. So it's like, if we're talking about like, you know, segregation and equality, I'm all for that. And especially I, I, but I do think honestly, and I mean, I know this has problems with the two, but shouldn't meritocracy actually be the answer to that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, but what that means is that the system that we have in place right now is, is not facilitating that, you Mm -hmm. know, I mean, I think that's, that's the whole point. And, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think there is this disconnect between what sometimes people interpret as intelligence, like what they see on the outside, like you're talking, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times, sometimes it's just a lot of luck. (laughs) You know, I mean, and there's, and there are other factors. I mean, I don't know, I guess it's a confluence of factors that influence where somebody ends up, you know, and I think that we can't underestimate um, all of them. I mean, whether you're talking about personality or ability or just environmental factors, like there are so many pieces that go into that. Um, And sometimes it's just also a little bit of luck. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I think like with the system that we could kind of, let's say expand upon or improve rather than obviously overhaul completely, what we're trying to do, I hope is reduce the luck, right? We're trying to make it mm-hmm. so that the opportunity, right. yeah. So it doesn't matter that let's say you were born in a project as opposed to like, you know, some upper class community, that's what we're trying to do. So, but I think that if they're overhauled and especially again, going back to the idea that this is being overhauled in public schools, these private, private schools are going to be unfazed and untouched. So mm-hmm. what's going to happen with the fact that these elite people are going to keep sending their kids to school to these same schools that are like breeding grounds for like you know the ivy league yeah mm-hmm. you know i, I want to you know you mentioned the thing about uh, about luck and you know i think what we're actually doing though is if we expand these programs we're we're, <laughs> we're giving more kids the chance to even come in contact with that luck no, you know it's it's no. like it, it, they don't even have they don't even have the opportunity to 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 have that you know thing that just happens for them to, to be in the right place at the right time or you know to to um have an opportunity and you know and if we don't expand these services if we don't provide those opportunities if we don't provide that springboard you know what what chance i mean not to say that there's not a chance but shouldn't we shouldn't we increase the odds yeah absolutely yeah, that's, that's why i like this idea of a universal screening test mm-hmm. it's 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 actually it's a great way to sort of suss out who 
you know, you, you give the test to everyone, right? Right, and then you can kind of see what level they're at, and then accommodate them. Yeah, right. So. And yeah, and just to because I think like just to be fair, and I want to focus on this too. Um, so I, look, I also want to say that I do understand the fact that obviously equality of outcomes to some extent definitely matters too, because the idea is there's definitely a huge wage gap, right? It's for, in terms mm -hmm. of income, wealth. So I mean, that's something that certainly needs to be addressed, like in terms of just the, you know the U.S. nationwide. So what I'm thinking is that you know instead of like instead of saying okay we want everybody to have an equality of outcome per se maybe the idea is that maybe we should start paying people more who let's say are not you know gifted and talented and don't mm -hmm. become ceos doctors and lawyers right so instead of having you know like the ceo make 33 percent more than you know your average worker why not kind of reduce the gap between the two so make it make mm -hmm. it so that like you know you'll still have gifted and exceptional people you know only cognitively speaking i mean um and so they're still kind of rising up the ranks but the point is that there's not such a discrepancy between them between the ranks yeah yeah, I yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I mean, I think um, I think that it's it is important to just kind of rethink all of all of those pieces. Uh, you know, it, it is, it's interesting too how just this one little piece, like this one little tiny segment of education, like what are we talking about, like maybe five to 10 percent of the student population, but it is so right. emblematic of all of these other areas as well. Right. Absolutely. And so before we wrap up, Emily, if there's one thing that you, and I know it might be hard to kind of chalk it up to this, but if there's one thing that you wish that people could just broadly speaking, could take away from your work, what would that be? My mission is to create a more neurodiversity affirming world. And that means that accepting people as they are and allowing them to feel like they don't have to change themselves to be successful or to fit in. Um, and I think that the more we normalize asking for help, recognizing that different people have different needs, um, you know, we will, we will gradually get there. And I think that that is something that I hope that people can, you know, kind of just work towards. I love that. Yeah. All right, Alex, final questions before we go, man. Yeah. If, uh, if we wanted to follow you and follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Um, I'm on Twitter. You can, uh, that is Emily KM underscore LPC, or the podcast is at Neurodiverse Pod. Um, and our website for the podcast is neurodiversitypodcast.com. Awesome. And yeah, and just for our audience, definitely check out Emily's podcast. It's literally one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, all right. I always say Dave, Dave makes me sound a lot better than. <laughs> <laughs> he does all the production stuff so he, he oh, puts it, makes the magic happen yeah and by the way man shout out to dave his the production quality on your show is stellar like phenomenal yes thank mm -hmm. you yeah he, well he's a perfectionist yeah so <laughs> yeah so the, the highlights of it i guess yes yeah <laughs> you're right anyway but yeah no thank you very much i'll pass that along absolutely thank you so much for coming on thank you yeah thank you all right that was awesome really fun so uh, everybody, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. <laughs> <laughs> Usually we say it at the same time. Uh, and thank you so much for watching. Uh, guys, buy the book. Again, it's called uh, Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners in Today's Classroom. It's available on Amazon. And you can also find, I believe, links to it on the NeurodiversityPodcast.com website. website. Mm -hmm. All right. And take care. Thanks for watching.